Okay, today we come to the last of the seven I Am statements, and uh, we've been at this for some weeks now, but uh, this is from John 15, uh, I Am the True Vine, and uh, annexed to that declaration is Jesus' statement, and my Father is the vine dresser. Then he goes on to explain, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As you look at the various commentators and, and those who are speaking of this, some, sometimes people refer to this as a parable, sometimes they'll refer to it as a metaphor. It, it really doesn't make a lot of difference. It, it's a figure of speech. Jesus is using a figure of speech to talk about a unique relationship that he has with his own, with his children, a very personal, a very intimate, very continuing, very life-giving relationship that he has with each of his children. And as David Guzik makes this comment on page one of your notes, it's, um, it emphasizes the, the, the aspect of complete dependence. And that if you come away with uh, anything in our time today, please understand, if you're a child of God, if you really have been born again, that your relationship with Christ is one of utter, complete dependence upon him. Constant connection. And just to jump ahead a little bit, if you're a Christian, you're already abiding in him. You, you are. The, the question is, are you seeking ways to deepen that, that relationship and, and engaging in things that foster communion with Christ? That's, that's really what this is about. So we'll be talking about what the evidence of abiding is and what the implications of those things are. But it's, it's, Jesus is speaking in, in a way that he's designed to encourage his disciples. And again, this, this comes from this section of John's Gospel, John 13 through 17, which we call the Upper Rim Discourse. These are his last real words uh, with his, his closest men, all of whom were believers except for one, Judas. But he, he's speaking to them, the, the, really, the, the last words of instruction that they will hear. And he's telling them that he is going to be departing from them. But yet, at the same time, he's also saying that even though he will be going to be with the Father, that he is not leaving them alone, that he is not abandoning them, that he is not separating himself from them in a real spiritual sense. He is, is very much with them and they with him. And it's designed to be a word of encouragement to them, and it's designed to be a word of encouragement to us as well. There are sobering words here because not all who profess to be in Christ are really in Christ. And the implications of being outside of Christ are dire. They're eternally disastrous. 
And he talks about that. Jesus is really, once again, talking about two roads. The scriptures always talked about two roads, two, two ways. There are those who turn to the Lord Jesus and recognize that that they have no hope of heaven, that they're utterly lost before a holy God. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, every, every human being in all of history, with the exception of Jesus Christ, and he was God-man, but every human being is utterly lost outside of Christ, without a hope of eternal life. And the, and the implications is the only thing that, that they have to do is there will, come, there will come a time of judgment before a holy God when they must answer to what will you do with your sins. And for the believer, the answer is very straightforward, and it's one for which we'll be eternally grateful that my sins are born in Christ, and his righteousness is mine. For everyone else, they will have no answer. They will have no answer, and the Lord will give them no rebuttal. There will be no second chance. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And so the question is, who will bear your sins? Either Sometimes people will try to bear their sins through either denying that they're sinners or trying to behave well or comparing themselves to others, whatever the case may be. But any answer other than, I have absolutely no hope of heaven except for Jesus Christ, is a condemning answer. So he's, he's emphasizing a number of very important realities. He's emphasizing to them the abiding relationship that he has with his own And yet he's telling them that there are those who believe that they are okay with God and they're not okay with God. They are condemned. But but again, as long as you have breath, as long as you're alive, there's an opportunity to repent and to turn to Christ. And so if anyone here not sure that you have eternal life, today is the day of salvation. But he's he's reminding them of this, that he's departing, but he's encouraging them because he's remaining united to them. They're they're going to be joined to him as these branches are connected to a vine. And I'm not a horticulturist, but I know enough to know that that the vine is that instrument through which life flows to the branches. And the branches, if they are attached to the vine, will flourish. And if they're not attached, they will not flourish. And there are some branches, perhaps, and, and sometimes we can push these parables too far, but uh, or these metaphors too far, but sometimes we look at a branch and it looks like it's connected, but it's not connected, and it's not bearing any fruit. And if a branch doesn't bear fruit, it's not connected. And so that's, what, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Well, there's a number of key expressions, and I've decided as we work our way through this brief passage just to, to touch to some extent, on a number of these key expressions in this passage. And the first one is the true vine. And he begins, the Lord Jesus does, in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. And you may remember when he prefaces these declarations about himself by saying, I am, and then affixes to that a description of himself, those first two words, I am, are pregnant with meaning. They they literally hearken back to Exodus 3.14. They hearken back to the, the, the very precious name of God, the self-existent God who made all things, who ultimately would judge all things. And he's identifying himself as God because he is God. He's the God-man. But each of these statements is prefaced by these two words, I am, ego, me. And the true vine, and the, 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 there's a number, if we go back to the Old Testament, and remember that the disciples, their Bible was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They, they were listening to the Lord Jesus. They'd been taught by the Lord Jesus. 
But if you were to ask them what, what Bible they had, it would have been the, the, the books of the Old Testament. And they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. So this is the world in which they operated. It's important that we not import into their understanding something that they didn't know at that time. But what they knew was that there was this metaphor of a vine, and the vine in the Old Testament was Israel. And it, it, there's just any number of times that God describes Israel as a vine. And, and God is the one who plants the vine, is the one who sustains the vine. Sadly, when Israel is described as a vine, it, it typically does not result in a good outcome because the vine is unfaithful. And the vine does not produce righteousness. The vine does not live up to its, it, the expectations. The, the vine is, is not a productive vine. And there's any number of passages that we could look at, but, but I'm just looking at Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 and, and a passage in Ezekiel, but in Psalm 80. And this was likely written from Jerusalem as, as the writer was astonished because of the captivity of the ten northern tribes in you know, 722 B.C. And they, they were taken captive because of their apostasy. So that's the setting of Psalm 80 is, is there the, the tragic implications of apostasy. You removed a vine from Egypt. This is the psalmist talking about what God did with Israel. He took them out of bondage as a vine. And he took them as a, he removed a vine from Egypt. He drove out the nations and you planted this vine. He gave them a good and prosperous land. You, God, cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. And just to jump ahead a little bit, page 2, verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. And then verse 16 describes the tragic condition of this vine that God had rescued from bondage. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. This is Israel. Isaiah 5, let me now sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes. This is what God did with Israel and Judah. But it produced only worthless ones, only worthless grapes. It goes on in verse 4 to say, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I could not have done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? This is the the, the apostasy of, of Israel. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. Verse 7, for the vineyard... In case we're wondering about the identity of the vine, verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord as host is the house of Israel. Page 3, another metaphor, the vine. Ezekiel 19, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters, it was fruitful. This is a lament for the princes of Israel. And uh, this section in Ezekiel, verses chapters 1 through 24, are prophecies about the ruins of Jerusalem. It's a a very sobering, very sad time. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters, verse 12, but it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground, verse 13. And now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. 
the exile, the, the most tragic of all circumstances. So the, they were familiar with the vine, but they, when they thought of a vine and Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I'm everything that Israel was not. Uh, I am utterly faithful. Uh, I am obedient to the law of God. I, I am right before the Father. And, and so he fulfilled everything that Israel failed to do. And, and it's a good thing because guess what? As, as believers, we don't have any righteousness before God. Whose righteousness do we have if we're in Christ? We have Christ's righteousness. And Jesus is the true vine. He's, he's saying that. And so there, when, when he said, I am the true vine, their, their mind would have gone back to all of these. And I only gave you three. There's, there's a number of other passages that you can look up. But almost without exception, when you read these descriptions of the vine, it's a sad story. It's a disappointing result. It's, it's, it's unfaithfulness. It's apostasy. It's judgment. It's, it's dereliction and devastation. It's a sad and very, very sad story. And both the northern tribes and the southern tribes. But uh, so that's the, the setting. But Jesus is the antithesis of all of that. He is the true vine. He's the, he's the vine that pleases God. He's the vine that has life. And the life that, that can be shared and is shared with those who are in him. And then he talks about fruit bearing and a lack of fruit bearing. And this, I mentioned earlier the, the fact that he always, the, the scriptures replete with Descriptions of two ways, two types of people, and the, the outcomes of those two people are, are just antithetical to each other. They could not be more different. There are those who bear fruit, and then there are those who do not bear fruit. Verse 2 and verse 4, I've just selected to focus on. Every branch in me, and notice that it is, what's he, how does he describe it, that does not bear fruit. He takes away. He severs it. He, he, he destroys it. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. We're going to talk about what pruning means, but it's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it involves cutting. It involves trimming. It involves cleansing. But it's a good thing. It's, it's a very good thing. But the, the, the vines that bear fruit, or the branches that bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it becomes even more productive, so that it bears more fruit. And then in verse 4, note, how, how do we bear fruit? Abide in me, and we're going to unpack that term, abide, but remain in me. That's the, the essence is to remain in him. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the essence of fruit bearing in your life is not self-reformation. It's not trying to work harder. It's not trying to, to, to gin things up spiritually in your own uh, effort. It's, it's abiding in Christ. That's where your fruit comes from. You notice he, he doesn't, he does, the command is not to bear fruit. The command is to abide because abiding is what, gives, is what bears fruit. And all the life that we have is because we're in Christ. And, and they, they, just to give you a sense of where we're going, what he's really saying is that, that all of the means of grace, and when we talk about the means of grace, we're talking about how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? How do we, how do we foster spiritual growth? We do that by time in the Word of God, meaningful time, meditative, reflective, serious time in the Word of God, not just simply reading the Word, but, but letting the Word read us. Prayer, communion with God, just uh, really pouring our heart out to God in, in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Communion with the saints, 
partaking of the of the the ordinances, or the sacraments, whatever term you want to use, but the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. And these are all means of grace, and the purpose of those means of grace is to foster communion with Him. It, it's to to cause us to grow in Him, and that's the the, the goal is not just partaking. The, the the goal is how is this helping me to grow in my love for Christ? How is this causing me to deepen in my fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ? The, the means of grace are a means to an end. They're not an end in themselves. The means to an end is that this is how we grow. This is how we abide. This is how we bear fruit. They're given to us as gifts so that we can, we can partake of those precious gifts, the Word of God, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's, it's the way that we keep our way pure. It's the way that we see God, the way that we see his law at work in our lives, the way that we see our sin. We see the communion of the saints as we sharpen each other, as we come into the preaching and, and teaching of the word of God, as we see the, the, the gospel memorialized in the Lord's Supper and in, in the um, and, and baptism, as, as we pray, as we enter into communion with God, these are all ways that foster our love for Christ and deepen our abiding with him. But the key that he's making is that fruit is a vital sign. I, I, I remember I used to preach for 15 years at a homeless shelter, and I would, I'd, I'd have a mixed group. Some of the guys I, I really had confidence knew the Lord Jesus, and some of the guys I really didn't know. But I would say, look, if an EMS guy comes out and he sees an accident and, um, and, and there's no blood pressure, there's the, the pupils aren't responding to light, there's, there's no, then they take him in and there's no evidence of brain activity and, and they, they can't get a pulse, that person is not alive. There's no fruit. And, and so even though someone might say, well, he, he's a person, well, he may be a person, but he's not alive. And, and so this, it's the same way with fruit. If there's no fruit, that person is not alive spiritually. And that's what Jesus wants people to understand. And, and it's, it, it, in a way, it's a two-edged sword. It, it, it causes us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the, in, in the Lord. That doesn't mean that there's not trying to undermine anybody's sense of confidence because our first confidence is pleading the promises of God. It's, it's not introspection. It's looking at the promises of God. But the evidence of grace at work in our lives is certainly an affirming, ratifying, indicative of, of, of what is going on with us spiritually. And if we see evidence in our lives that God is doing things in us, then that should give us great confidence before him. But the first place we go is the promises of God. If anyone confesses Christ and trusts to him, then the promises of God are, are, are sure and certain and never fail. But he gives us the ability to look at our lives and to say, I, I'm seeing not what I want to be, not what I shall be, but I'm not what I used to be. And, and I, I see that God is, is doing things in my life, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And you should be encouraged by that. That's the essence of what fruit is. And Galatians 5 talks about two different kinds of fruit. It talks about the fruit of a person who's outside of Christ and a fruit of someone who's in Christ, and they're very, very different. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Philippians 2, top of page 4 
Paul says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. And when Paul is talking about this abounding in knowledge, understand that his desire was not simply that they become intellectually familiar with things, but that they would have a, 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 a real heart knowledge of God, that they would have an experiential love for the Lord Jesus Christ, a living love. It's like, so, it, it, for those of us who are married, we, we know when, when we say to our loved one, I, I love you, we, we, hopefully they see that in, in our lives. So I'm sure they do. Not as, perhaps as consistently as we would desire, but, but it's, we, we evidence that. But, but they, we want them to know that it's not just a, a, a statement that we're making, that we want them to know that it's true, that they're entering into that, that it's, it's a reality, and they're growing in that knowledge. It's, it's a vital personal knowledge. Well, the third thing that is the father and the fruit-bearing branch. There is a very important dimension to the role of the father in, in this vine and branch uh, metaphor. My father, in verse 1, is the vine dresser. Jesus has said, I am the true vine. And then he affixes to that this statement that my father is the vine dresser. And so here we have this horticultural motif where you've got someone who comes and cares for the vine and trims it and does what's necessary to to cause it to be productive. Every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. These these would be the the, the branches that just aren't part of the vine. They're, they're They're not really attached. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. When you prune something, you, you get a cutting instrument and you, you remove the things that are helpful and you trim it and you do those things that, that I suppose, I don't know if vines have nerves, I don't know, I don't think so, but if, if it was a human, it would hurt. And, and that's, that's what God is saying. Sometimes it hurts, and it does. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, I, I, I'm thankful that I was afflicted says that in, in three times in that one little section in Psalm 119. But uh, he, ta- he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And for those who are in Christ, this living, vital, dependent relationship with Christ is a, an ongoing experience where if we are really attached to him, Hebrews 12 says that, that he will do what he needs to do so that we will grow in that, that life of obedience with him, that he will discipline us. He will not punish us. He punished Jesus in our place on the cross for our sins. But he will discipline us in love, in perfect love, in perfectly wise, perfectly good love. He will discipline us. He will prune us. And it's not something to be afraid of. It's not, it's not necessarily a pleasant experience, but it's a good and wholesome experience. But David Guzik makes this, this observation that real fruitfulness is only determined over an extended period of time. So we, we don't look at a snapshot in our lives. We don't say, here's where I was six months ago or six days ago. What's the trajectory of my life? What, what's going on in my life? What's the, the, if I'm looking not at a, a still picture but a, a movie, what's the movie of my life look like? And, and it's, it's long-range fruitfulness, growing fruitfulness. And it's usually not a straight-line path. It almost never is. There, there will be dips and valleys and inconsistencies in that path. There, there almost always are. But it's the long-range fruitfulness. And that pruning experience is, is what the Scripture tells us where we grow in, in holiness. We're, we're in fruitfulness. Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says, My son... 
Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. That, that implies that there could be times when it could be pretty significant. He says, don't, don't faint when you're reproved. That, that implies that it could be a pretty, pretty tough time. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. That's a strong word, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Top of page 5. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's, that's a, a reality and assurance, a promise that you can lay hold of. So when the Lord does take you to the woodshed, and he, and he does this not out of retribution, he does it out of love, and he sharpens you and he, and he chastens you, and he, and he does what's necessary to bring to your attention the sin that's been hiding in your life, and perhaps you've been denying it's there, perhaps you've been just refusing to acknowledge it, whatever the case may be. He does that because he's conforming you to the image of his beloved son. We know that because Romans 8 tells us we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's talking about a true believer. But the following verse, for those whom he foreknew, which talks about setting his love upon us in eternity past, he predestined to become conformed, shaped, molded into the image of his dear son. That's a precious promise. So how do we know that all these things that come into our lives are good things? It's because God said they are, and because the process, the end result is absolutely magnificent, because it's a process of making us more like his son. And it's ongoing, believe me. It is, it is not an instantaneous product. And it was never finished in this life, by the way. So to temper your expectations, it will not happen fully in this life. It will happen in heaven. Then he goes on in verse 3 to talk about clean branches. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, again, we, we look at a particular chapter, in this case, John 15. And in our English Bibles, remember that John 13 is just a little bit ahead of time. It's in the same setting. And there is this instance where Jesus comes in, and it's the Last Supper. It's a Passover meal, the last Passover meal he'd ever have with them on earth. And he, he comes in and he lays aside his outer garment, he takes a towel, and, and he, he, he literally does what a hired hand, what a servant would do. It's, it's a very humbling experience. He did that because he was explaining to them that they needed to be washed. And he begins to wash their feet, and Peter recoils at that proposition, and he says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, what I do you don't realize now, but you will understand later. And, and, and he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. The reason that the hired servant that, that would, would wash their feet is they wore sandals. They, they, they walked in dusty streets, and they, their, their, their feet were, were dirty. Brothers and sisters, the same thing happens to us. We walk in the world, and the world affects our bodies. It affects our lives, and we need to be washed. We don't need to be clean. 
Jesus is saying you're already clean. This, this the difference he's drawing between being clean and being washed is important that you understand that. This is essentially what 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So when he's saying you're already clean, he's saying, to, it's like he said to Peter, but you need to be washed. You, 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 the world has affected you. you your, your feet are dirty. And, and, and you need me to wash you. You need to acknowledge that there's dirt and dust on your feet, that you've walked, you know, in some pretty bad places. And, and the world has, has affected your life. And guess what? I'm going to wash you. And he does that. But he says he who's bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And in, in this whole discussion about being clean is, is really talking about the fact that we're forgiven in Christ. That, that, but washing is of a different nature. But Ezekiel 36 talks about this aspect of being washed, of being clean, pardon me. I will pr- sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you and remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of... of of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. That's that's the description of what it means to be cleansed. And then there are these instances when we just simply need to acknowledge because we're already clean, we're already forgiven, we're already in Christ. He's already washed us by His precious blood. But there's times when we need to say, "I need to be washed. I need to I need to acknowledge my sin. I need to to come before You, Lord." And just say that I've got some dust and some manure on my feet. And, you, and I just need to confess that before you and get, and get cleaned up. And so we need to understand that distinction. Top of page six is abiding. And it, this is really the, the pivotal idea in this whole uh, incident in John 15. Look how many times I've, I've bolded this for you just, to, just so you can see abide in me, abide, abiding in the vine, abide in me, in me, in me, in me. And, it, and the essence of abiding means to remain. If you're a believer, you're abiding. It, 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 when he, it, he wants you to remain in him. It, you're not going to be disconnected from the, from the vine. How do I know that? Because in John 10, Jesus has said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of, out of my Father's hand. If you are in Christ, there is nothing, no one, that can separate you from the love of Christ. Romans 8 says that. Jesus said that in John 10. But you need to remain in him. We need to keep fostering this ongoing communion. And and if you remember the very first week we started this study on the doctrine of Christ, I prefaced it by saying that the purpose of this is is not just to inform us about these things, but it's to foster worship. It's to foster communion with Christ. It's to take us to a place where we can meditate meaningfully upon who Christ is and give thanks for who he is and what he's doing in our lives. That's, that's really what a study of Christology should do. It should humble us. It should cause us to become more ardent worshipers. It should fuel our adoration for Christ. And, and so to abide means to just to draw life from Christ. And, and he, he's saying, in, in, in these words, he's saying, any spiritual good that you have in your life is because you're in me. It literally is because it's in, it, you're in me. You're connected with me because the vine is giving you life. John, earlier he said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. And he's not just talking about eternal life. He's talking about the here and now spiritual life. He's talking about every aspect of spiritual life. I am the life. If you're connected to me, you're getting spiritual life from me. You're, 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 you need to depend on me for everything that you have. 
That's the nature of what it means to be in Christ. This vital, persevering faith in Christ is one's only salvation. And Joel Beakey said this, a a relationship of close union and communion, there is no holy or fruitful life except one lived by faith in Jesus. Any spiritual goodness in any man comes uh, through Christ as the mediator. That's where all of our goodness that we have, it is because we're connected to Christ. And and I I don't know that I've meditated often enough or long enough on, on union with Christ. I've been reading lately some really precious works on, on what it means to be in union with Christ. And, and the Puritans wrote often on that very subject. John Calvin wrote very, very much about what it means to be joined to Christ, united to Christ, in fellowship with him. That's the essence of what the Christian life is all about, is to be joined to Christ. And, and, and that's why the scripture almost totally describes what a Christian is, not by saying a Christian, but someone who is, you know this expression, in Christ. The word Christian is very rare in the New Testament, very, very infrequently used. Every time Paul is describing a believer, guess what? He uses these two words, this prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He wants us to understand, and and, and God wants us to understand, that what it means to be a believer is, guess what? You've been taken out of the domain of darkness. You've been, you've been joined to Christ, inseparably joined to Christ. And he is fueling through this vital connection that you have with him everything that's good in you, everything. The Holy Spirit is producing that fruit in your life. Your, your ongoing relationship with him is fueling your spiritual life. It's, it's, he's the lifeline that you have, and you can never be separated from that. The intimacy of abiding, verses 4 and 5, this abide in me and I in you. What an amazing thing that Jesus abides in us. But it's reciprocal. That's really what he's saying. It's, 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 it's I'm, you abide in me and I abide in you. It is this life-giving relationship that is inseparable and is vital and is perpetual. You'll never be disconnected from Christ. But he's saying, realize how vital it is that you're connected to me. That's, that's everything that you have that's good is coming from me. F.F. Bruce, the, the scholar, said this, Paul does not use the Johannine idiom, but he expresses the same truth when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. And I can do all things in him or through him which strength, who strengthens me. So Christ lives in you. That's, 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 Paul is saying that the same thing that Jesus was saying, abide in me and I in you. That's the same thing Paul's saying in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live. You're not disconnected. He says it's no longer I who live. He's, he's saying, guess what? There was a time when I was not connected to Christ. I was outside of Christ. And then God in his magnificent mercy on the road to Damascus humbled me, took me right down to the ground and, and showed me I needed Jesus. And he gave me a new heart. And now I can say that Christ lives in me. And if you're a believer, you can say the same thing. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that is an eternal relationship. That is your lifeline. That is everything good is coming through your connection with Christ. And I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And that's not just a, a little moniker that you see on some athlete's you know, hat or something. It's, it's Sometimes people will see that. They don't understand what it means. But... It's not saying that you're going to do some superhuman athletic event. It's saying, guess what? You can live for Christ because he lives in you. You can, do, you can serve him because he, he's, you're joined to him. And you can never do that apart from him. 
It was impossible before, but now it's not only possible, it is inevitable that you will live for him. So just just keep that in mind. And then top of page 7, the consequences of non-abiding and non-fruitfulness, verses 2 and 6. There are branches that do not bear fruit, and he takes them away. He's not referring to believers. You need to understand that. He is not talking about believers here. He's talking about false professors, people who don't bear fruit. I have an excerpt from J.C. Ryle, and I think it'll be helpful in this way. If anyone does not abide in me, a believer abides in Christ. If someone's not abiding in him, guess what? They're a false professor. There's someone, maybe they're sitting in a pew. Maybe they've been going to a Bible church their whole life. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe, they, maybe they've even partaken of the Lord's Supper. Maybe they've sat under Bible teaching for a long time. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, that there will come a time when many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons and do miracles and, and amazing things in your name? And then the most horrendous words in all eternity that anyone can ever hear, that will echo through their heart, for all eternity without recourse is depart from me, you wicked, I never knew you. When he says, I never knew you, he's not talking about, I don't know, I don't know who you are. He knows who you are. He's talking about his, he said, he's never set his love upon you. And there is no second chance. Anyone who hears those words will never see heaven. They will only see hell. And, and so it, it's the absolute most sobering reality in all eternity. But, but, if, if someone is thrown away as a branch and they gather them and they cast them into the fire, that's talking about hell. And Jesus wants his people to understand that someone who's truly born again will bear fruit. They will bear fruit. They, there will be a tangible difference in their lives. Not a, a perfect resemblance to Christ by any stretch, but a serious growth in Christ over time. A, a demonstrable evidence of changed life. If anyone's in Christ, they're they're a new creation. The old things have passed away. New things have come. It is inevitable. You cannot be born again and be the same. Paul says that. The old things are passed away. You become a new creation. If you're not a new creation, talk to us. You need to become a new creation. You need to turn to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Do not despise the gospel. Because the, the implications could not be more profound. They could not be more hopeless than that. So the emphasis, as David Guzik says, is, is plain. There are no true disciples who do not abide. I'm not going to go off on a tangent on this, but the whole doctrine of the carnal Christian about the, the sort of the, the super spiritual Christian and then the wannabe Christian who really hasn't got their act together and they're not really showing fruit, that's a very, very dangerous doctrine. It's a very dangerous doctrine. Anyone who's not bearing fruit needs to really examine themselves and, and come talk to us as elders. It, 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 let's, let's have a conversation. If you're not seeing any indication of life in your life, spiritual life, please talk to us. And, and it, it, you know, it, it could be that you're a believer and you just need to, to, to have a different perspective on what God is doing and sanctifying you. But if, if, it may be that you're outside of Christ. Come talk to us. We, we want to watch over your souls. But the implications are most severe. Abiding and praying, verse 7. These, this looks like sort of a carte blanche promise here, and it is, but we have to understand what the promise is. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
Now, what does that mean? If, if we're abiding in Christ, we're going to be, and his words are abiding in you. That's the key expression here. If my words are abiding in you, then w- what are you going to ask? You're going to ask for things that are in accordance with his will, which is exactly what John says in his first epistle. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that he will give us the request that we've asked of him. So what Jesus is saying when he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that second expression, if my words abide in you, if we're meditating on his word and we're praying his words back to him and we're really saying, I want your will to be done, not mine. I want to do those things that glorify the Father. Then, then guess what? You, you will get those things. If we ask amiss, as James says, if we, we sometimes we, we don't get because we don't ask, but sometimes when we ask amiss, if this, Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock, and the door will be open to you and it will be given to you. But ask properly, if, let his words abide in you. It's, it's the corollary verses, 1 John 5, 14, and that's really what he's saying. It's this process of having our desires shaped to his so that when we ask those things, we're asking that his will will be done and not ours. And then lastly, the glorification of the Father in verse 8. It, this is really the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man is to, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what it's all about as a believer, is to glorify God. And how do we glorify God? By bearing fruit. And if we bear fruit, we show that His. If we're bearing fruit, it's because we're connected to the vine. We know that the Spirit of God is producing in us true righteousness, and He's changing us. And that glorifies the Father because, we, because the Father is seeing that someone who, upon whom He has set His love in eternity past, who's been purchased by the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and redeemed from, from sin and death and hell, and is being conformed in the image of Christ, guess what? A work in progress, but what a wonderful work in progress it is because God's doing that work. It honors God, and he's well pleased with that. It glorifies him when we bear fruit. Because he sees that, that, that what he has chosen us to be in eternity past is exactly what's happening in our lives. Just a few observations. I, I, I'm out of time, but let me just point this out to you. Uh, J.C. Ryle, four key observations that he makes on page 8 and 9 and 10 and so on. But if, if look at this, um, there are points that he makes, and there, I've, I've bolded them for you. And, and I think it says this probably better than I can summarize it in a couple of minutes. But, but take, take some time, please, and, and look at these four points that he makes about the union with Christ being very close. Second point on page 9, about false Christians as well as true ones. Third point on page 10, about the, this, what it means to be abiding and bearing fruit. And then the fourth point on the same page is that this increasing holiness by his providential dealings with him, that's pruning. It's, it's a, he does a good job of describing what it means to be pruned, to be shaped into Christ. And then there's an article that in the, in the last, it's an appendix that you can read at your own convenience, but please take time. And, and look at this little excerpt from J.C. Ryle's Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of John. It, it's, it's brief. It's only about three pages long. But, but it will bring all this together for you, I think, and in, in, in summarize it well.